You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Join us in a journey, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4. And as you're making your way there, I'll give you kind of a maybe a a layout of where we've been and where we are in the Bible and where we hope to go today in just this one chapter. And so up to this point in the Bible, God has created out of the overflow of his perfection the world and the people in it. And yet yet even in perfect even in perfect circumstances, the people rebel against God, like you and I so often want to be. We want to be God. We, we wish people would worship us. We wish we had the power and sovereignty over things. And, and yet God doesn't give up on them, gives them chance after chance. He delivers them from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And, and even though he gives them a promised land and an opportunity to have a place and be a distinct people for, for his glory and for their joy, what do they do? They reject him again. And so the discipline that God allows them to experience is that they're sent off into exile, into Babylon. That is the the pagan worshipers, the empire of the time. But it falls to, uh, what happens next? It it falls to, to the Persians. And that's historically where we find ourselves in Ezra and Nehemiah. But theologically or biblically, in the course of the story of how God's redeeming his people, this is a second exodus. This is a second deliverance. Think of it as like, this is a second chance for like the hundredth time, right? And and they get an opportunity to come back home to to a a great homecoming where they experience renewal and rebuilding. So here we are, kind of the third section of this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first one being about Zerubbabel, who who begins to draw people or lead people back into, into Jerusalem to rebuild the altar so that right sacrifice and worship is experienced. Because after all, if, if they don't meet with God, who cares what you live in, right? But then a second wave comes through Ezra, who, who also helps rebuild the people, the, the spiritual vitality of these people. And Nehemiah, in many ways, wraps up this particular period of renewal in history with both, of rebuilding of the walls and then also a rebuilding and reformation of the people. On that note, happy Halloween or happy Reformation Day, right? I think you should eat candy for either one, whichever one you want to celebrate. That's up to you. So, uh, so the reformation that takes place in Nehemiah is a reformation of a distinctive nature of these people. They have a wall then, right, to, to separate them from the pagan worshiping or the pagan idol worshiping uh, people around them, but then to experience renewal. And so we've begun this series, and I want to keep walking us through this question because this is the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I want you to answer this as personally and truthfully as possible. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Where in your life do you, do you know you're colder than you ought to be? Where in your life are you unforgiving, hardened? Where in your life are, are you marked by despair, cynicism and skepticism, doubt? Where in your life are you more motivated by fear than trust? Where are you more motivated by, by worry and anxiety than you are by calm and rest? And I want the answer to those questions not to be a source of shame for you, but I want you to realize those are the things that God actually wants us to ask him for. God delights to give those things to his children, and Ezra and Nehemiah is a historical example, one among many, of that very thing. And so as they've begun rebuilding in chapter 3, we saw a a massive rebuilding project that began uh, to include everyone. It is a, a massive sense of unity, where, where Nehemiah, in many ways, models prayer. He plans out and, and begins to delegate the work, and, and, a, and an amazing, miraculous thing happens. And so as the work begins, here's the second question I want you to begin to turn your attention to for the rest of our time in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it, I hope if this is the first time, then this question's enough. But this next question I want to ask is the question that I, I want you to begin to think about specifically as, as it pertains to the rest of the, chapter, or the chapters of Nehemiah. So if the first question is, where do you want or need to experience renewal? Stop for a minute, and maybe you get the chance to thank God for this. Where are you currently experiencing renewal? If you've been with us over the last several weeks, I have have every reason to believe that God has probably already started to stir new life in you in places that were once cold and dead. Now, here's the thing. If not, if things have gotten worse since then, that's okay too. Nehemiah uh, wept and fasted and prayed for four months. 
And so hang, hang in there. The beginning of renewal often starts by getting worse before it gets better, by realizing the depths and the, the painfulness of things, the, the, realizing the, the awfulness of sin and its effects before God begins to be able to show grace to us in those areas. But, but where are you currently experiencing renewal? Because Nehemiah, having led these people to an experience of renewal and rebuilding, faces and invites us to consider how we might face adversity in the midst of renewal. Make no mistake about it. Every good thing that God gives us, the enemy wants to rob from us. And we'll talk about that at length. But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, the heading even you'll see, and maybe in some of your Bibles, is opposition to the work. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But... When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not work or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So 
We labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. I pray that the Lord would help us to see Jesus in all of the scriptures, even in this story. Where might you currently be experiencing renewal? This might take effort and optimism that you may not have much of, but where can you kind of see God beginning to work and answer some prayers? It's okay if you don't have an answer to that, but if you do, then Nehemiah 4 is a reminder of what's true throughout the entirety of the Scripture. Whatever God means to do to bring life, renewal, and hope to His people, there are there is an adversary. There is evil personified. So I, th- I think we find the good news in this chapter is this, that God renews, equips, and protects his people. Did you hear the language resounding in that passage of go and work, rebuild, and protect, and God will be with us. God will fight for us. And so whatever God means to do to renew us, to give us new life and new hope in the places where you and I long for it the most, the coldest, darkest, hardest places of our own heart and life, the places that God means to bring grace and mercy, softening, life, joy even, are places that the enemy means to attack. And God will deliver. God will carry us through. The good news of this, Paul tells the Philippians, as we saw this a little over a year ago, the promise he holds out to them is that God, who began a good work in you, is faithful. And he's going to carry that good work out to completion in Christ Jesus. Everything that he means to give you, Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing he's going to give us in Christ, he's going to do. He's, he's begun it. He's given us the down payment, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, so that we can know for sure he's going to give us everything he has coming, to everything he means to give to us. It will be coming to us. God will carry it out. He will equip us and he will protect us. But the passage here gives us a pretty stark reminder that to ask God for renewal, for renewal, to ask God for new hope and new joy is also to invite the work of the enemy. I keep saying that, so maybe that seems unfamiliar for you. Maybe if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer and talking about things like Satan and hell and the devil, that seems archaic and silly. I want to invite you to, to be curious at least a little bit uh, about how the Bible teaches and explains the things that you in your, in your own life know are broken and messed up. Evil is personified, and it begins even in the very first stories of the Bible, where God creates all things, and then he crowns creation with with image bearers, that is, human beings who, who display the very likeness, the complexity of God. And so they rebel against him, and, and God's response to them is, in light of a, a serpent that was, as you see in verse 1 of chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Elsewhere, the prophets tell us that this, this, is, the, this is a picture of, 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 of a creation of God that, just like us, rebelled against God, but did so in a way to, to actually take as many people down with him as possible. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I love that the first doubts that creep in start with a question. Did you hear five of them in the passage we just read? As we began, it starts in in verse 2. In the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, Sanballat, you're going to hear more about him, his friend Tobiah, they're going to show up a few more times. And what, what is it that they do? To discourage, to literally it says jeered, in verse 1, the Jews, jeering them with questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? You love that? Like, what are these weaklings up to? 
Will they indeed like restore it for themselves? Are they really, are these weaklings, these feeble people going to rebuild the city? Are they going to rebuild what, what, what once was? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Do you hear like, 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 like they're going to get it finished. They're at, you know, apparently the way that they were acting was, was pretty urgent. And it says like, are they really going to finish up as quickly as they think they are? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, even the burned ones? Do you hear the jeers of those people? I want you to understand there's an author to those kinds of questions, those kinds of jeers. And Genesis 3 tells us there's a personified evil. The Bible will call him Satan. We'll call him the devil. And the way, at least in the beginning, that he begins to cause us to rebel against God are these kinds of questions. Right, one of the most profound ones. I, I, I encourage don't don't be afraid of these questions. Like, we, we find later that and we'll, we'll work our way up to. We find later that these questions are are actually can be causes of deep grace, a deeper understanding, a, a deep faithfulness. But even questions like, if there's a God, how can there be fill in the blank? Right. If there's if there's a good God who's created all things orderly and perfect, then why is there and then fill in the blank whatever whatever you think challenges that. Now I believe the Scripture gives us a great and gracious answer to those questions, but make no mistake about it, those questions have the power to to tear us down, don't they? If there's a God and this God is so good, then why is my life so fill in the blank? Why have I been through fill in the blank? And I want you to realize that's <laughs> those questions come from the enemy. The scripture says those are questions meant to get at your very sense of existence, right? Why am I here? There is no purpose. If there's no good God, then what's the point in all of this? And so, of course, the man and the woman, the first people, right? It's so helpful to, to point this out whenever we can. Many people think, if the circumstances were just perfect, I would be better at fill in the blank, right? And, and it's the very first story debunks that. The very first story in the Bible is like, by the way, if everything's perfect, you'd still rebel against God, right? Everything's perfect. They're with God, and they're like, I still know better, right? So they rebel against God, and a few verses later in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, God responds to the sin that they had rebelled against God to, to do their own thing, and he says to the serpent. Now, this is what theologians will call the proto-evangelion, like the, the, the proto-gospel. In the very first story, God says to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, what? Right, right, instilled a rebellion or like tried to incite a rebellion against God. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So after we understand the standing of this, this enemy, this accuser, this is what we hear. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a couple things that are important to see here. It refers to the, literally that word offspring is the word seed. And it says the seed of the, of the serpent will evidently be at enmity with the seed of the woman. Now this is, this is already, the author is trying to tell you something. You don't usually speak of women and reproduction by using the word seed. If that doesn't make sense to you, I encourage you, ask your gospel community, community leader or call your mom and dad, okay? I don't have time for that, but that's not how we think about that. And yet he's, evidently, there's, there's this, you hear, it's, it's the proto-gospel. There's, there's something coming, and there's going to be enmity between a seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that and in, in this clash, they're going to they're gonna go at one another, and, and, and evidently the seed's going to really kind of land a blow on the heel of the seed of the offspring, but, or the seed of the woman, but he's going to land a blow on the head of the snake. And so, from the very beginning, and again, this may seem cryptic, archaic, outdated, but I want to invite you, how do you explain how awful things are in the world? I'll even say it this way. Have you ever felt like something evil or awful has happened to you in such a way that's tailor-made to make you miserable? 
Now, again, there's a narcissistic, very self-centered way to think about this, right? But have you ever wondered how, like, a bad thing, bad things have happened to you, and they were so precise, they got to the, they got to the depths of your soul? Have you ever experienced something like that? How do you explain that? And your thought is like, well, again, this can be a narcissistic tendency to be like, well, no one else feels it like I do. Maybe, maybe not. But here's the thing. Have you ever thought where where that comes from? That feeling like that things are especially bad or, or the way that the circumstances have turned out are especially bad for you? A distinctly Christian conviction is that you're not wrong. There is an author of evil. And he is writing a script to ruin you that is tailor-made to give you the most misery and despair that you can imagine. But, right? But, that's not the end of the story. Quite literally, it's the first story. The end of the story carries on. Did you hear? He gives us a preview Sure, he's going to make you miserable, but there's going to be one that will come who will crush his head. We'll get there. But this language of the adversary, the accuser, the enemy, Satan, is throughout the Bible. And so in many ways, Nehemiah, in this work of renewal and experiencing opposition, looks back even to the Exodus, but it looks forward to something else. What many scholars believe is probably the oldest book in the Bible, that is the manuscript seemed to be the oldest, is the book of Job. And in the very first chapter, listen to this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. I mean, this is, we don't have time for Job. Uh, it, it takes, if I ever preach Job, it's going to take us a few years. So, oh my. There's a lot going on there, right? But the, 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 Satan is with the sons, with God's son. Ooh, okay. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth. This is a euphemism, like wherever I want. And from walking up and down on it, right? Like, oh my, this Satan apparently has a lot of freedom. There's not many places where he's not. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now stop for just a moment. Think about that. Think about that person, that God would say, there is no one as good as this guy. There is no one. And just connect the dots here. What does he face? (laughs) The work of the enemy. And the Lord, this this is the heart, like the Lord has no problem with it. Now, I believe the Lord has no problem with it because, remember, there, there's a sto- this story has an ending, and the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the snake. But evidently, even, even in this story, you get a picture of there is a personified evil. In Psalm 71, that word is translated as the accuser, and that, that theme is picked up in the New Testament, that, that Satan and the devil is the accuser of the brethren. But... John wraps it up this way, and it's the best way I can think to summarize this personified evil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been, you hear him summarizing the story I just told you? It's been sinning from the beginning. And yet, listen to this. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. destroy the works of the devil. And so I want you to see that Nehemiah 4, look, Nehemiah 4 looks back at the work of the enemy and the adversary to oppose any new life or new hope or new joy that God does. But rest assured, every time that opposition shows up, it's to remind us of the way that opposition will ultimately end. But when I ask a question, something like, where do you want to experience renewal? And where might you already be experiencing renewal? Here's what some of you already know. It feels like that is already under attack. And I want to comfort you. This isn't the first time, it's not the last. In many ways, it's evidence that God is actually at work. It's the way that the enemy wants to stop 
what it is that God has, has been doing. Now look, it comes in, I think, multiple different waves, but at least two separate ones here. It starts with taunting, like jeering. Do you hear that? It says that they were building the wall and Sanballat was angry. We already talked about that last week. That like You get this idea that like whenever God wants to do something, someone's not going to be happy about it, right? Just functionally speaking, I mean, that, that's just one of the challenges you and I face, right? Like, we, we get frustrated with anyone we don't have control over, right? We get frustrated with anyone who has, like, a higher loyalty or allegiance than to, to, to something else other than us, right? And so in that sense, any group of people who's like, no, we're going to follow the Lord and what the Lord says to us, in a way, is going to enrage any other people who want to tell them what to do, right? And so he's enraged and begins to jeer at them. You hear the taunting that begins. It starts with questions, like we saw, that are doubt. And then it becomes just insults, right? Man, a fox is going to knock down that wall, right? And what's the first response to the taunting? It's in verse 4. Did you hear it? It's very abrupt. I think it's intentionally abrupt. The quote stops, and Nehemiah starts telling the story again. And he doesn't introduce it. He doesn't tell you about it. He just starts doing what? Praying. That alone might be one of the most helpful things for you to take away from this passage. Think of it this way. This might be a mantra you repeat, you repeat in, the, in, in the mirror every morning, right? When I face adversity and opposition, the first thing I will do is pray. When, not if, when I face opposition, when I experience adversity... When I experience something going wrong, my first response will be to not defend myself, not to lash out, but to pray, to take it to the Lord. Now, this is troubling because what we have here is what's called an imprecatory prayer. Now, in our journey through the Psalms, we've only seen a couple of these so far, um, and they're, they're what's called an imprecatory prayer. That is, they are, they are calling down God's vengeance upon their enemies, upon the enemies of God. And it's tricky, right? Hear, O Lord, for we are despised. Hear that lament. You've already seen that even elsewhere in Ezra. Now turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Some of you didn't know you could pray this way, right? Some of you didn't know you could call down curses and the wrath of God on God's enemies. Now make no mistake about it. God gets to decide whether or not he does that, okay? Uh, but it is actually a part of the life of faith to look to God for vengeance and wrath. That is to say, it is not a part of the life of faith to take vengeance and wrath in our own hands. But instead, to tell God about it. He already knows. He's already seen it, but it's one of the, in many ways, one of the most frustrating things you'll hear from me is if you share something, I'll be like, hey, have you taken that to the Lord? No. Okay, well. When you face adversity, your first response is to pray. It is an act of faith. Even if that act of faith is, in this, is, is kind of problematic, even if you wish God would do things that probably God shouldn't or couldn't or wouldn't do, Evidently, the act of faith is to turn to God for the solution, to trust him with the response. What happens is he responds instead of, by, you know, right, instead of responding in, in vengeance or, or, or lashing out, right? He prays, and then, and then you know what happens next, verse 5 or verse 6. So, very, very matter of fact, so he built the wall. We built the wall. And all the wall was joined together, and evidently we find out they, they were about halfway through it, right? They got about half to, to about half the height they wanted to get to. But just connect the dots on that one. When experiencing adversity, they, he cries out to God, and in crying out to God, is able to go right back to the work of renewal, right back to the work of rebuilding. Think of that as a, a profoundly descriptive and instructive bit of wisdom for us. But, and again, every single one of these accusations, there's as many as nine of them in the course of Nehemiah, it starts with that same phrase. You saw it at the beginning of the chapter. You saw it last chapter as well. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and Ashdodites did what? They heard. 
So again, they hear about what God's doing. They heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, right? And it was being successful. They were about to close up the breaches. And so in that sense, when they heard that their threats and taunts didn't work, they escalated into the second phase, which after taunts and jeers, it goes into actual threats. Actual move of violence against these people. It says they were angry again, but verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in her. You're looking at verse 8 and verse 9, right? They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. So they're, they're about to get ready to like inflict violence. And what does it say they did? In case you missed it the first time, right? And we prayed. We prayed to our God. And in prayer... They resolved to do what? To set a guard as a protection against them day and night. I think you see two themes woven through this chapter. We saw last week the, the theme of prayer and planning. Right? That we, we ask God for things, and yet we actually make arrangements to, to receive what he's going to give us. We, we make plans to trust that he's going to answer those prayers. But we, what we see here is the theme of prayer and protection. They seek God, and you hear language. Remember I told you this is the second exodus? This language is almost identical. If you read the book of Joshua, as they're given the promised land, this language of God fighting for them, God delivering them, right? them praying and seeking the Lord, this, it's almost word for word the same. And what do they do in light of the threat of violence? They pray. They turn to the Lord, knowing that if the Lord is going if the Lord delivers them, then they have hope. If not, they're without hope. It says they prayed and they set a guard. And so you see these two things, this, this protectiveness along with prayer. And I suspect that just like we saw last week, there, there's a, a tendency in each of us to err on one side or the other to the detriment of holding them together. Because look what happens in verse 10. In verse 10, you find out that there's actually people starting to feel burned out. They're feeling overburdened. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever like looked around at your own life, a relationship or a situation, and be like, man, this is, this is too far gone. That's how they were feeling. And then the enemy said, we're going we're gonna to plot against them. We're going to come and kill them in such a way that it stops the work. And then even the people who like, should have been encouraging them. Have you ever heard, have you had this happen? The Jews who lived near them, in verse 12, came from all directions. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> the haters from everywhere, right? All directions, and they said to us ten times, you need to return to us, right? Like, hey, you need to come back home. And yet, what did they do? Verse 13, it says they set in the lowest parts behind the wall, in the open places, they stationed people with their clans, with swords, spears, and bows. So notice there's two things going on here. There's the work of renewal and rebuilding and then protecting what God is doing in the work of renewal and rebuilding. There's, there's the work of renewal that's throughout the entirety of this Ezra-Nehemiah story. The work of rebuilding, reforming. And then here we're introduced in opposition to protect, the protecting of what it is that God is doing. Verse 14, it says, I looked and rose and said to the nobles and the officials, the rest of the people, and he gives some imperatives. I want you to notice the imperatives he gives them in the midst of opposition. There's three of them. Don't be afraid. Some of you know this. You've heard me say this. One of the most common phrases in the entirety of the Bible is the phrase, fear not. Right? And it usually comes when God shows up and people freak out, which is what would happen. Right? Like an angel appears to you. They're like, hey, fear not, which I suspect doesn't work. Right? Like, sure. Yeah. But it's an imperative here. It's tricky because on one hand, we're commanded to fear, to fear the Lord above all things. But evidently, the outworking of fearing God above all other things is that we are freed from the fear of man, from the fear of our circumstances. The first imperative, do not fear. You fear God such that it expels the fear of our circumstances. Second imperative, did you catch it? Remember the Lord. What a profound and practical tip, right? When you experience criticism, fair or unfair, remember the Lord. 
when you experience the accusation, when you feel the weight of your own sin and frailty and failure, remember the Lord. What a, what a practical and instructive thing for us, right? When the enemy comes and accuses us, here's the hard part, he usually accuses us rightly. So if someone comes and accuses you of something, there's a sense in which you can say, look, man, you don't even know the half of it. Right? You, you think I'm a mess. You should hear what Satan says about me. Right? He was there every moment I did that thing. Right? And here's the, here's the thing. If you heard all of the things that he accused me of, and all the things he rightly holds against me, and then knew how much grace God gave me in the midst of it, there's really not much you can do to me. And so, whenever we understand the work of opposition, the work of the accuser, the work of the enemy, and realize that God will protect them, I love that, verse 15, when our enemies heard, hear that language again, they heard again, that what? That God had frustrated their plan. There's a sense when you know that God has frustrated the plan of the accuser against you, it starts to dull the accusations and criticism we experience in the world. There's the third imperative. After remember the Lord is great and awesome, he says, fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What a profound and instructive thing as well. When we experience adversity, a fear, either from criticism or others, or the taunting of the enemy, he says, first you need to focus on the Lord. But if that's not enough, he, he seems to address this again. In that moment, that's when we're most likely to become self-focused, aren't we? Woe is me. We're supposed to, we, we end up looking at ourselves. And yet, what does he say? One of the gifts that God gives us is the love for others. And one of the best ways to face opposition is to think about how you can love and care for others. Now, here's what I'll tell you. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, right? If, you, if you're in this room and your eyes have been opened, you are born again and made new because you've beheld Jesus. You hear his words. Greater man hath no love than this, right? There's no greater love that anyone can have than what? That he lays down his life for his friend. And for those of us in Christ, that is incredibly good news. And if you've beheld that kind of sacrificial love, it's implanted in you something deep, and you may not even know it, but you have that sacrificial love now by God's grace for others that you love. Now, you may not have told them this yet, and you may not have been able to like, put this into words yet, but if you're a Christian, there's probably people around you you will willfully die for. Am I right? When you see the resurrected Jesus, when Jesus has defanged death, ruined its sting, right? There's a sense in which you have people around you whom you love that you would die for. Or maybe some of you are like actively trying to do it. Hang on right? But I want you to see that's actually an act of grace. It's a work of grace in your own life. That when you experience opposition, one of the best things you can do is to see how it affects others. One of the best healing and, and formative practices is to think about your love for other people who are suffering. So those imperatives are profound when we experience opposition, when we experience adversity in the places where we want hope and we want more life and we want to be renewed. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then remember to fight the ones you fight for the one fight the ones you love. Well, that's not right. Fight for the ones you love. Remember them. God's put them in your life. It's not an accident. You're meant in some profound way to display the grace of God to them. Because as God's purpose advances, the enemy's tactics adapt and even escalate. It said from then on, from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, did you hear it? People started carrying weapons the whole time. From that day on, half my servants worked construction, right? And the other half held the weapons. And the people who were working... In one hand, they were, they were doing the work of rebuilding, and in the other hand, they were holding a weapon. In one hand, participating in God's call in their life to advance his kingdom purposes, and in the other hand, they were protecting what they knew was so valuable. They knew that what God was renewing was too valuable to, to simply leave to chance. 
I think I shared this just a minute ago, but like, I think there's probably, in this room, there's, there's probably at least two different camps of people along these lines. Those of you who are really excited about rebuilding and renewing, and those of you who are really excited about carrying a sword. And, and I want you to know, just, just hear this. If you get really, really jacked up about the thought of carrying a weapon, you've missed the point of this passage. On the other hand, if you're like terrified of the thought of people carrying weapons, you also have missed the point of this passage. And to you, I would say adversity is real. The enemy wants to rob and steal, kill and destroy. The enemy wants to take away what God is doing. Like a seed, right, that's fallen and, and the enemy comes like a bird to, to pluck it up before it can take root. And if God has implanted that in you, then it's on you to think about how you might protect it. But on the other hand, maybe, maybe if you're, you're really excited, oh yeah, I'm, I'm here to protect, that's my role. I'd be like, hey man, let go of the sword with both hands, right? And pick up a, a tool of renewal. Because it says that they were both integral. And notice, the sword served the purpose of God's renewal, not the other way around. It's incredibly important to remember that. The enemy were the ones that were aggressing. But notice, they only strapped a sword on their side to defend themselves from what the enemy was doing. And so, in one hand, they have a tool. In one hand, they have a weapon. Charles Spurgeon published a a series of these things as well, and he described, he kind of entitled the series, The Sword and the Trowel. You may have heard of it right? Like the the trowel, a a tool for laying mortar to build bricks and rebuild a rubbled wall, and a sword to protect the work of rebuilding and renewal that was happening. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight for the ones you love. Guard what God is doing. Expect jeering. Expect taunts. If they taunted and threatened our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother Adam and Eve and every single person that's come along, then expect that to happen us. But here's the other thing, and notice, have a clan. Did you catch that? It said, the enemies heard, they returned to the wall, and from that day on, half my servants did this, half of them did destruction. Uh, did destruction. Again, that's not, that's not helpful. If you're gonna, a, lot of, a lot of word slips here that are just not helpful. Servants did not do destruction, they did construction. But these people gathered together, they, they were set up in the open places, stationed in verse 13 by their clans, and I want you to hear in that your gospel community. I want you to think, we talked about this last week, the place that God has called you to, to participate in an act of renewal, in marriage, in your neighborhood, and your city, in our church, like think of it as that's a gospel community for you, a, play, a clan of people that were stationed here together. And at any given moment, did you hear it? At any given moment, we could rally together. When you hear the trumpet, it says, run to wherever the trumpet's blowing from. Think of it as this work is too big to do alone. And Nehemiah says as much. It's so big, we're, we're going to be spread out. We're scattered, and that's a good thing. But it means that we, we do so expecting adversity to come. Just practically speaking, let me, think, let me help you think of it this way. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the Lord has blessed Connection Church. First of all, just blessed it by allowing it to exist. And I don't think it's a secret. I think, I think we all feel this. Um, we're poised to experience some amazing things in the next 20 years. We're going to get to watch God do some pretty amazing things. Don't think for a minute that the enemy is going to allow that to happen silently. For many of you in this room, you've been blessed, right? With friendships, with relationships, some of you with spouses, with children. Don't expect for a minute that the enemy will allow you to enjoy those things silently. Some of you felt this, right? Like this is, I try to warn couples, and I just, I guess I'm not very good at it, but like you, like you get married, you're like, I did it, you're right? New renewal, it's awesome. And then it's like the enemy's like, sure. 
And those places where you, you are tempted to be complacent in blessing, Nehemiah 4 is a reminder for you and I, that's the place the enemy wants to crush you. We see this in chapter 6. He goes right after, especially the leaders. Like the place the Lord has blessed you and is renewing you is the target that the enemy has on you. Because if he can drag you back in despair through jeers, taunts, and threats, if he can drag you back into the deadness and the brokenness, the rubble, then he'll do that. And so for us, the response is to pray and to protect. Expect the Lord to work and then expect to protect what God is doing. I'll show you this as, as Paul encourages Timothy, his own his own. Uh, a, a mentee, a young, a young man he encourages, and uh, among many, but in, in, Second Tim- in Second Timothy chapter 1 as well, in First Timothy chapter 6, you see Timothy getting this same kind of admonition from the Apostle Paul, oh, Timothy. I mean, that's when you know you love someone, right? Oh, oh, Connection Church. <laughs> Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now grace be with you. He says it again in the introduction of the next letter he wrote to them. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now again, why would Paul tell him that? Why would his mentor not just say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Put it in cruise control, right? Don't worry about a thing. He doesn't say that, does he? In the book of Acts, even, we hear an encouragement to the people who are in Ephesus, probably connected to to Timothy. Hey, the thing that you have to worry about is that people are going to try to get at this. People are going to try to rob this. They're going to try to hijack this. And in Nehemiah 4, we see, in a sense, a a battle over the fate of these people. People vying for power and control over what God was doing in and among these people. I shared this with you before, but experiencing renewal, experiencing God's grace daily and regularly has more to do with like, like trying to walk up an escalator as it's coming down. Or like being at at an airport where there's like a a moving sidewalk and trying to walk against it. There's a sense in which, and this is why they were called to be distinct and build walls to separate themselves from the outside world, because if you just sit back, if you just wait, the current of the world, the the schemes of the enemy are going to drag you along. Experiencing grace is actively pushing against it. And so Paul tells Timothy, and I think he tells us, If you have any encouragement, he tells the the Philippians, if you have any encouragement, anything good you've received from Jesus, he says to Timothy, guard it. Expect it to be threatened. Have a clan. Have a trumpet to rally. Then he says at the very end here, Nehemiah gives a picture of the same kind of motivation. I think Paul had to give Timothy this encouragement. Persevere. Never let down your guard. Did you hear that? The very last verse Neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. They just slept, right? They just slept in their work clothes. Each kept his weapon then at his right hand. Think of it this way. If they taunted and threatened Moses, if they taunted and if they threatened Jesus, and if they taunted and if they threatened his disciples, then the enemy will taunt and threaten you and I. And he has a clever way of saying the most painful and hurtful things. The lies he convinces, and again, it's the hard part, the lies he convinces you to believe aren't the same as the ones he convinces me to believe. He's just, he's sneakier than that. The thing that tempts you and draws you away from trusting and experiencing God's grace is not the same that draws me away. And we're called to have a clan and to persevere In the end, the enemy won't stop after the first try. He will come in waves. Scoffers are adaptive. They are unrelenting. Now, on one hand, I think we need to understand the church around the world understands this better than us. 
as we're sitting here in a climate-controlled building in comfortable seats. I don't want to minimize the adversity you experience from the enemy, but I also don't at any one point to minimize the suffering and pain that's inflicted by people who actually inflict violence on brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And so, we expect the enemy to try to rob us of the thing that God is granting us. But how does that happen for us? And let me end in this. Ephesians 6 says it this way. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Did you hear that? Did you hear that again? That theme of prayer and a sword? We realize that the work that Nehemiah was doing to to reestablish this city so that one would come and sit on the throne of this new city is actually a picture of what Christ does for us. In fact, at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6, where he gives us this picture of, of an armor that includes a sword, just like Nehemiah says, it starts by telling us to be sure to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not. I wish it was. Right? Like, I, I, wish, I wish we were one election or one conquest away from all evil being dispelled. And the enemy would love to convince you that it is. But our battle is not that small. It is eternal. It, it was begun by an ancient snake. And thanks be to God, the way that we defend ourselves, the way that we experience protection is by God's word, his promise to us. This is a gory chapter, I realize, but it gets worse. (laughs) Revelation 19 gives us a picture of Jesus coming back, and it's a beautiful picture of a wedding. I read it at weddings. I don't read this part. This is a few verses later. I I should, but I don't want to ruin the mood, right? Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. But right after that, it says the that that Jesus returns. He comes back on a white horse and it says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That is the blood of his enemies. This is the picture of Ezekiel and other prophets coming to pass. And the name by which he is called, now this is the language of the apostle John. In the beginning was what? The word. He is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. But listen to this. Before you think you should actually strap a real sword and carry it around. Verse 15, it says, From his mouth, that is the Lamb, that is Jesus, the one who is the Word of God made flesh. From his mouth came a what? A sharp sword. That's crazy, okay? There's a sword coming out of his mouth. So that John would be sure to know that the way that the enemy is defeated is by the Word of Jesus to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. That's a picture of God's wrath, of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hear me clearly. The accuser's work, that ancient snake, is vanquished. It is crushed by the very mouth of Jesus. Did you hear hear the imprecatory prayer? Did you hear it? It was awful, wasn't it? In some sense, you're like, man, Nehemiah's a pretty vindictive leader, right? He's like, man, Lord, never forgive these people, right? Never blot out their iniquity. Thank God it wasn't the word of Nehemiah that was the sword that came and vanquished the foe. But did you hear in the midst of trial and suffering the prayer of Jesus from the cross? If it was me, it would have been like the same thing. Wipe them all out, Lord. Never let anyone forget this. Hold this against them forever. But it wasn't. What did he say? What was that powerful sword that came out of his mouth that crushed the head of that ancient snake? Father, forgive them. And friend, that is what protects the work of renewal, the new life that he has granted, he will also protect. In Jesus, we have every single thing he needs. We know that God renews and equips and protects his people in Nehemiah, but in Christ, we have new life and even security in Christ. 
In him, we have everything we need. Here's how it applies for the church. Matthew 16, we say, this is, we talk about this in membership class. And I tell you, as he speaks to his apostle, his, his, his beloved friend is going to deny him, Peter, on this rock is a word play. The word petros means rock, right? Petrified. On this rock, I will build my church. Hear this language. I will build my church. Do you hear the language of renewal and building right out of Nehemiah? But then you hear the language of protecting, don't you? And the gates of hell, everyone will prevail against it. I'll do this. Jeer and taunt all you want. I'll crush the head of that snake. I'll do this. And you can join me in protecting this work of renewal because I won't let anything snuff it out. And so for those of you who are afraid of failure, terrified, you can be encouraged. God protects, God equips, and God will deliver. For those of us who experience adversity and opposition, we know the Lord will come back. The Lord will exact vengeance upon his enemies. Let me close with a story. I've told this a few times and several years ago, but this is how I understand this. And I want to encourage you with it. I'm going to tell you a story that I'm not really sure how true it is, but I'm going to give you the facts as I understand them. When I was in elementary school, my brother, I have an older brother, he's about two years older than me, and he went to middle school. And, uh, and I, I, love, I love all the things I got to learn from my brother. I got to play sports with him. Um, but for that period of time, he went to middle school without me, and I was kind of stuck in, in grade school. He's in middle school. Now, what happened in this, I'm not really sure. My brother, even, I'm, I'm, my brother even, hasn't even told me this. I had to ask my friends about this, all right? I had asked some friends that were evidently present. And at some point in time, while my brother, like his first year or second year in middle school, uh, he had some sort of beef with this other guy. Um, this guy wanted to fight my brother. Now, here's the, the weird part. One day, some of you might get a chance to meet my brother. My brother's the most lovable guy ever. Like, everyone loves him, okay? It's terrible. It's awful, right? <laughs> Even my parents. Anyway. Everyone loves him. He's so lovable. I love him. He's, he's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, the fact that someone would dislike him is, is something. Now, there's a couple things going on. I'm not going to say it, but this guy's name that was mad at my brother, it was a name given by his parents that is also used as a name for many women. Uh, that kind of set him up for a little bit of trouble for him, right? So he was already had kind of a chip on his shoulder. I think people had made fun of him for that. And he probably didn't like how much people loved my brother. Well, whatever happened, some fight happened. I don't know. I, these are, I don't know what happened, okay? I had to ask my brother's friends to get, and, and what I heard was more like a legend, right? And, and so at some point, the, the altercation escalated and came to blows. But I don't know what happened. It happened on the way, like in the hall, and there were, this was before there were, you know, cameras and schools, and, and somewhere on the way to the locker room, you know, that's a dangerous place, right? Um, somewhere, somewhere on the way to the locker room, this comes to blows, and whatever happened, I don't know, I, I don't even know who really won the fight. One of the legends goes that my brother, like, held this guy down, like, sat on him to the count of three. And I'm, again, that sounds a little too far-fetched, right? But, like, somehow, like, overpowered him, and and I don't really know what happens, but here's the facts I know. Later, when I got to play baseball and be on team with my brother and this other guy, it was around this other guy, fact number one, that guy hated me. Hated me. And I learned something amazing about that. He hated me because I reminded him of the one who had shamed him. And he wanted to make my life miserable because I was related to the one who had shamed him. I don't really know what happened, but it was enough to where he hated me, right? And I remember, I remember getting in line for a snow cone at a baseball game and him, like, shoving me and trying to bully me and, like, I don't even know you, man. Like, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's not that, like, had he not gotten, had he gotten to know me, he would have found his own reasons to hate me, right? Like, I'm not saying, <laughs> but he didn't, even, he, didn't even give, he didn't even give it a chance. He's like, I hate you. And the one, I don't know what happened, but here's what I do know. He hated me because I reminded him of the one who had shamed him. Here's the second fact I know. He would not touch me when my brother was around. He would not say or do anything against me when my brother was around. I want you to be encouraged by that. There is an enemy who prowls around like a lion to seek to kill and to destroy. And he wants the weak and he wants, to, he wants to destroy as much as he can. But here's the thing. The reason he hates you, the reason he can't stand you is because you remind him of the one who shamed him. 
The reason he wants to kill you is because your older brother made a joke out of him. Colossians 2 said he was, that, that all that, was acu- that we were accused of was held out for open shame for the enemy. Here's the second fact. He can't do anything as long as Jesus is around. He can't hurt you, harm you. He can do no more than our older brother will allow. Friend, I want you to know in the place where God's bringing you renewal, there is adversity coming. There is opposition coming. And it will hurt. It will be painful. But it's only because the enemy can't stand the shame he feels from our older brother. And rest assured, the enemy cannot go anywhere near us when Jesus is around. Let's thank God for that. Lord, we thank you that you have come to be with us and for us in Christ. We thank you that the renewal that Ezra and Nehemiah experienced was simply a foretaste. It was a picture. It was simply a preview of the renewal that we have been promised in Christ. God, I know that so many of us in this room have have lists of, of things that we've suffered There is no shortage in this room of things that cause us pain, that cause us harm. That list seems endless. And so I pray that in these moments that you would even now begin to grant comfort and rest. Remind those who are hurting that you will bring about the end of all tears and suffering and sorrow. That the work of the enemy cannot go beyond the finished work of Jesus. That whatever the enemy can do amounts to a bruise on the heel of Jesus, but what Jesus accomplishes is the crushing of the head of that accuser. Would you begin to allow us to see that, feel that, experience that, trust and believe that such that it gives us hope? Allow that to, to call us to the work of renewal in our own lives and in places where there is lacking a hope of the gospel. Allow us to trust that so that we can, we can stop trying to fight for ourselves or stand up for ourselves, but instead trust that, God, you will fight for us. Thank you. You've done that for us in Jesus. Might that fill us with hope and joy, even in the midst of the worst kinds of opposition. Thank you that there was no opposition that could hold you back, that could hold you in the grave. <laughs> but at the count of three on the third day, you rose victorious over us. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.